This is the Future of Security Operations podcast brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high-value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsler, COO and co-founder of Tynes. Now, let's jump right into today's show. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Security Operations podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Niall Heffernan. He's the head of security at Stealth Startup and a former senior manager of information security at Informatica. Thanks for chatting with me today, Niall. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on. So for those of us who don't already know you, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and the work you've been doing over the past few years? Yeah, of course. So as I said there in the introduction, I've just joined a Stealth Startup as head of security. So Actually, week two in there and figuring that out and building out the team, building out the processes, etc. Before that, I was with Informatica for about three years, leading the security engineering and operations teams there. And Informatica is a recently on public global data management company. And prior to there, I was in security consulting. So for a good few years with uh, Deloitte based in Ireland. Sort of doing consulting across a range of things, right from the deep dive head testing through to deep dive forensics, incident response, and everything in between. So it's a fairly sort of varied background across the years there. Outside of suppose the core, core nine to five, I've done a little bit of lecturing on some various courses, worked a lot in the certification space with Comtia as a subject matter expert, and I've been on program committees for few conferences with OWASP and first so. Nice. Really broad and really uh, really varied background, I suppose. And you've got a pretty good overview of security operations space. So you're, you know, you're starting a new security operations team now. Like how would you describe the state of security operations today? I think to describe the state of operations today, we really need to look at where security operations has come from. And if we think back a few years, it probably evolved out of like a network operations center. And then we started getting antivirus on endpoints and they started handling AV alerts. And then it sort of spawned off to be sort of a, a network security operations center nearly and handling AV and basic firewall alerts. And it sort of went on from there. In the last five, 10 years, we've had a plethora of tools added to that from across different environments and across different use cases. And really what we've seen is each of those tools generates alerts and each of those alerts needs to be responded to in some way, shape, or form. So I think we've seen really the security operations teams being overwhelmed by a volume of work and really volume of false positives that isn't going to be sustainable to continue going forward with with sort of that rote rate of alerts and incident numbers and the teams have been seeing. Yeah, it's impossible to do that. And I suppose you're like you're in the position right now where you're hiring a new team, right? Or you're building out new processes. If you're thinking about, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about the self startup. But if you're thinking about that right now, if you're in a position where you're starting out a uh, a security team, what's top of your roadmap? What are you thinking about? Yeah, so I suppose 
really where we want to be is to to have our security team focus on those high value incidents. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of incidents that we can, well, A, push automation behind, but B, then push that automation to, to have our users do our security response for us as the first line. So simple things like popping a message to them on Slack to say, you know, did you log in from here? Was that you? And we can use that to bubble up then sort of user-generated responses so that our security operations team have gotten a response from the user before they ever start to investigate. And the security operations team then, I think, should be the ones that are looking at the logs, looking at the back-end information to sort of verify those responses, but don't necessarily need to be reaching out to the user on Slack or Teams or whatever, or via email and say, hey, did you log in from here? They're really sort of crowdsourcing a lot more information. I think the second part of that then is to to start putting some sort of risk metric on the incident or the user. So for example, if a user has had multiple incidents or if a user has had an incident on their laptop, let's say, and then has an incident involving their identity, we need to correlate those incidents together and make that bubble up to be a more significant incident. A simple example might be something like a malware detection on a user's laptop, followed by two days later, a suspicious login from a location. Each of those by themselves may not sort of bubble up to be overly significant and may not get the attention they deserve from the incident response team. But if we put them together and can sort of highlight them as linked incidents, then they become really important because we can see that that's a potential pattern. And I think there's, there's probably a lot of value there in doing those sort of risk analytics and putting risk scoring together like that so that we can really sort of spend our time wisely and not get bogged down by the hundreds or the thousands or, or whatever volume of incidents or alerts or events, whichever sort of taxonomy you want to use to describe them. We don't get bogged down by that. So. Makes a ton of sense. And I love that idea of, uh, I suppose, of risk metrics. It's not something that I, I hear a whole lot of people talking about. What are some of the tools that you're using to do that? Or how are you going about doing that? I think there's definitely some tools out there. I think from the, from the start, we can bake, anyone can bake this in and do it themselves. So something very simple is to maybe just put a comment onto every incident with a unique identifier. And this is something that in Informatica is paste a comment into your case management system and make it in, in white, clear text so it's not even visible. But then search for that unique identifier. And when I say unique identifier, say, Thomas, you have a unique identifier assigned to you in some system. So if we paste that in, we now know that that incident is attributed to you or you're involved in that incident in some way. And then we can search for that unique identifier and just raise up all the incidents and say, hey, you've been involved in two incidents in the last week. We're going to now escalate this incident from a you know a P3 to a P2 incident or, or whatever it is. And obviously, we can go down a path there of adding more and more complexity. But really, we just need to start finding the incidents that are potentially related to you and just bubble them together. And then, you know, we can add the complexity over time of this incident from this tool. We really rely on this tool because maybe this tool has less false positives or, you know, we don't rely on this tool or or whatever to the same extent. So. And this is obviously something that's pretty important because, yeah, if you have somebody that's, you know, got malware on a laptop and then a day later logs in from a new IP address or suspicious location and, you know, accesses a bunch of files as their own, they could all be P3 or even P4 incidents, but together they're a P2. But that's not something that you can correlate manually, right? So how do you go about doing that? 
Yeah, well, I think it is something that could be correlated manually, but it's going to take time, right? It's going to take a few minutes and it's going to take the intrigue of whoever is working one of those incidents to sort of go, I'm going to look at this and sort of get a bit of a dog with a bone mentality. And, and there's five senses firing being like, I think I remember yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of sixth sense that people in security sometimes they sometimes have, right? Yeah. Um, and that's fine. But if you're done looking at incidents over the course of the day, you're probably not going to do that for every incident you look at because most of them don't go anywhere. Just human nature, they're going to get a bit fed up. So yeah, if we can start doing that and just doing that through the incident so that people then know to go look at these other incidents, that's going to help. It depends on your your individual stack about how to do that. You know, we previously did it with times and our case management, and it was a very manual way, which we were then trying to build out over time. But, um, you know, there's certainly loads of other ways of doing it through whatever data reporting tool or case management tool you're using. Yeah, being able to generate those reports and a lot of, yeah, even like basic case management systems will be able to correlate some of that information for you and be able to, or certainly be able to query it. And your hack of the white space is definitely something that, uh, yeah, that works pretty well. Yeah, and I think what's important with that sort of hack is that we don't want to use just the username because the username pops up across other incidents, let's say, or or may pop up, you know, or it may have a slightly different username across different systems or, you know, your laptop may not be automatically the same or correlated to your, your username, for example, sometimes or, or whatever. So, yeah, you also said that you like you obviously want to just focus on those like high value incidents, right? And that's I think that's the dream of every uh, like of every security team. They want to get rid of all that like manual tasks, those manual time consuming, boring incidents that yeah that aren't important, but that they don't want their analysts doing that work. How do you approach that, or and how do you decide what incidents should be considered like high priority? I think we need to look at of what your most common incidents are. And let's say, you know, you're, you're getting loads of incidents of malware detected on a device. You need to then look at what steps are your security team actually going to take with those incidents. So for example, if malware is detected on a device, do we need the security team involvement to actually deal with that incident? Most of those detections, they're probably then already quarantined or cleaned by the AV tool. So yeah, sure, we can probably do something like send a notification to the user and say, hey, we've spotted this activity and just FYI, no action needed. We've dealt with it already. But hey, if you start to notice any suspicious activity, please let us know straight away. Or something like, hey, if they then have a, another detection a week later, we may need to then follow up with that user manually and just sort of figure out why are they having these detections if they're true positives what sort of behavior are they doing to generate that? Maybe they're false positives. Why are we getting false positives? So that's a sort of simple high volume event that we can probably strip back away from the stock and, and move it back to the user to sort of try and crowdsource more of this information. I think though, when whenever we talk about sort of crowdsourcing information like that, we need to be careful because users are not security experts. And so while we want to get some information from them, we don't we also don't want to rely on them to always provide us the correct answer. For the best will in the world, they may not understand the context of the ask and the security implication of the ask. But to come back to your question, I think the best way is to really try and push back as much work back to the user and, and to automate where possible as well. Simple tasks like if you have an analyst and sit down with your analyst and ask them, what do they spend their time doing, right? If they spend most of their day 
in an incident, figuring out who a user is and who they report to and where they're located. Or, you know, they may do that 50 times a day. They may then look at 50 different IP addresses and try to figure out from VirusTotal if they're malicious or clean. Can we automate that? And we don't have to make an automated decision, but we can start adding information, enrichment information into the incident. So just paste the user identity, their manager, their phone number, their location, paste some of the results from VirusTotal on the IP address incidents. And so we're creating a single pane of glass. That will start to save them time then as well, because they won't have to constantly repeat the same reasonably mundane pieces of work every hour or multiple times an hour, whatever the volume is. Yeah, 100%. I think you, like, you've obviously talked quite a bit about automation there, but you spent a long time both, I suppose, in consulting, dealing with the whole load of security incidents and then in industry, dealing with like a whole load more. But when you look at automation, what are some of the things people do do wrong, I suppose, or what are some of the approaches that you'd avoid? That's a good question. I think most people try to bite off more than they can chew. Yeah. Um, they take automation and they think it's going to fix everything. And when it doesn't fix everything, then they're disappointed. But actually starting small and iterating over time is going to be more powerful. So doing something basic at the very start, be it auto-creating an incident and then slowly iterating and adding functionality to your automation over time is going to be more valuable than trying to automate an entire workflow or trying to automate an entire function straight out of the box. Sometimes security people try to bite off more than they can chew and think, hey, we have a playbook that we execute manually. Let's just automate that entire playbook and we'll never have to think about this incident again. But actually, you know, sometimes automation, automation is great, but also, some people tend to then over-rely on it and try to make automation make their decision for them. But sometimes really what we need is that sort of human element and that human interaction to go, here's all the results. And yeah, I'm happy with that. And we mentioned the sixth sense and the spidey sense earlier. Sometimes we just need the human to look at the results and sort of go, mm, something feels a bit wrong. Yeah, and there's a bit of a, there's, it's not very scientific sometimes, but yeah, you yeah. Know, sometimes there is just let's not automate that. And and over time, hopefully, we can build up a level of confidence that we can further automate that and start suggesting a response and then train that into. So maybe yeah, and I'm always a little bit wary whenever I suggest someone's like, hey, you know, just put it in front of a, the human being and let them use their spidey senses because that's not a process and that's like that's definitely not what you know. How did you detect this incident? Well, I yeah. relied on my intuition. It's not. Uh, it's, it's not, not repeatable. A, it's not repeatable. It's not scalable. It's not something that you can go to. Uh, you should go to your CISO and, or you and say like, actually, yeah, this is how I detected it. I don't like hearing that, but at the same time understanding the human being being like actually there was something weird and that thing that was weird was that that person i do remember had that incident two days ago where that ip address was from like you know romania and like they're based in bulgaria so like that it just flagged a little bit and then you're like okay we can actually build this into our logic and we can build up but yeah you're totally right it's very rare that they build it great and they will come model of security works in general like yeah just deploy this and everything will be fine it's often like deploy iterate and keep on building and you will find those little uh, tweaks that you're able to use to make it an awful lot better. Security sometimes has things to learn from software engineering and development that everyone builds an initial product and so some sort of minimum viable product and then they iterate over that for years to come, right? That constantly pushing new features and pushing new bug fixes, etc. It's very much the same in security. We need to build a base, be happy with it and then iterate on that over time and not expect 
sort of not look at it again for a year or two. Yeah. Having said that, there's also processes that can be automated or that you can go a lot further in than a human being could go because you are able to hit scale with automation, right? So I know in, in Informatica, you had this incredible like vulnerability management program that you were able to yeah, do things that a human would never be able to do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I suppose we had, we had a problem that we had too many servers and too many users. And the, the users were responsible. Security is a lot easier without, without, without like, devices or users, you know? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just turn everything off. Or we had users who were responsible for patching servers, and there was way too many of the contacts manually every month. We're talking in the region of 900,000 different people who we, we'd need the security team to sort of reach out to and say, hey, you own, you know, you might own one server, someone might own 10 servers, and they're responsible for patching the app layer on them and most of these were sort of you know development style servers or or whatever still important to uh to be dealt with so we never could figure out how to do that because it would take a team of people to to be pulling these reports and then emailing the reports following up on them etc so yeah we we automated it i suppose so that we could send vulnerability reports and then track them against their sla of whether people were patching or not as they should have been and just bubble up to our security operations team, then the people who are missing the SLA, and we could figure out why they're missing the SLA and and take different decisions based on what network segment they were they were in and how critical the asset was, right? I think when you have start to, to get a lot of assets, you really need to start looking at asset criticality and, and mm-hmm. what what your crown jewels are and a different set of actions for something that's really critical and and just sort of basic security press, we take a different set of actions on what's in our DMZ versus what's in an isolated internal network, right? So we need to then take decisions based on that and maybe something that's internal, we can get closer to fully automating where something that's closer to production, we may need to sort of have that more human touch and sort of help the user to patch and help them to remediate. At the end of the day, we don't want to take an automated decision that shuts down a production server or nor should we probably be capable of doing that. So yeah, I suppose that that automation was a series of playbooks sort of based around that and contacting users and then enforcing our our SLAs to make sure that they were patching over time. Nice, I love it. And yeah, I just remember seeing it and yeah, being so impressed with the complexity and the comprehensiveness of it, but also just that like you're going to places that it was impossible to imagine a, a human being doing all of it. The other part that I loved, and I think this is a part that's missed out in a lot of security operations space is that you didn't just do it you brought in like the communications team you brought in like the security awareness team you brought in the engineering team to share like hey this is what the process is going to look like so that you you had to bring all your stakeholders along with you right yeah i think that's important too security isn't a siloed department it works you know to be a business enabler right so if we can bring those people along on the journey it certainly helps get buy-in and and yeah simple things like communications you know they, they came back you know, we're emailing 900,000 people every month. They came back with simple things related to our templates about like, I think here's how we should contact them and this sort of works better in our experience. And, you know, they all help versus the sort of security-centric mindset of, of how we word an email asking people to patch. Just sort of, you know, little things included, a little sort of rephrasing really help. Nice, yeah. As you say, it's really important to bring people along that journey, but I... I think again, security folks are can often be a little bit single-minded and yeah, maybe blunt is uh, is a nice word for how they see or like black and white is how they see the world. 
Uh, in some cases, yeah. this must happen at this particular time. No questions asked. This has to be the priority. But an important aspect as well is also linking with your risk management, right? Because again, security people can often think this needs to be patched or the, the world will end. But there's always reasons that things can't be patched or won't be patched. And there's, you know, up to a point of someone will accept that risk, right? So you need to bring your risk management people along on that journey and have them be on standby to deal with exception requests. And obviously your, your risk management policy then has to be adequately built so that you're getting sign-off at the right levels for different risks. But everyone's not going to be able to patch. There will be reasons at times people will need to delay or won't be able to patch or won't be able to resolve something. So we need to be cognizant of that as well and how we deal with that. Yeah. Talking around like risk management and that like maturity process. I think that a lot of security teams start out with building out their detection layer and then, you know, building out know, compliance and then building out, you know, a risk management layer. But one of the things that's really interesting about your journey is you were there when Informatic went public, right? Like how did you see the maturity of the business grow over those few years that you were there? And like, what did that process involve? I think that's something that a lot of people are curious about from the outside. Infratic was probably a bit unique in that it was public and then went private in 2015 and then went back to being public in 2021. So a lot of the process was actually maintained from being public originally. I think for some security teams, the head around is when you go public, you then have reporting requirements, right? So obviously the public are potentially your shareholders, but you have SEC filings and those SEC filings will include risk items and I think for most companies now, cybersecurity is going to be one of those stated risk items. So you're going to have to include stuff on your security program there. And then following that, you're potentially going to have incident notification requirement changes, incident reporting requirement changes, and and really have to have to link in with your investor relations or whoever handles your investor relations because you have a much broader set of owners now or, or shareholders all of whom will take an interest in your security program to some varying degree. So yeah, I think it's, as companies with public, it's that added scrutiny on on practices and added rigor on on things. And another big one, of course, is in private companies, access control can sometimes be a little bit, I don't want to use the term looser, but not as regulated as it should be. So Things like access to sales figures then become extremely important because people can trade and misuse uh, material non-public information. And so as the security team, we then need to start really enforcing our access reviews, our certifications, things like that, to make sure that only people who should have do have access to things like sales figures or whatever it is, so that we, you know, someone can't potentially misuse them outside of a trading window sort of considerations like that sort of come to the fore then as well yeah absolutely i know when uh, when i, I was in doctor's home when it went public the the process like obviously as you kind of said there's a lot more rigor and a lot more scrutiny but it also meant that every incident post or even like in the, the run-up to uh, yeah there was just that potential that you'd have to make a public uh public announcement about it and as a result like the legal team uh, would have to get involved in you know early on a bunch of incidents and the cfo suddenly starts taking a little bit more interest in uh insecurity because their reputation is on the line so this positives isn't necessarily the right word there but there's definitely areas to improve your security program as well it has to improve i guess as you're growing i'm kind of curious a little bit as well like that just around 
as you were growing, as the team was growing, it's really important to like attract really good talent, right? And retain it. You're also at the start of a lot of people in their cybersecurity career through your work through the National College of Ireland, where, where you lecture. I suppose, how do you see the path forward to people getting into cybersecurity? It can be a real challenge for people to break in. And then like, how do you make sure that you're, you're treating them right and giving them the opportunities to grow? Obviously, we know there's a skills shortage. And I think in the last you know, five years, there's been a, a huge focus from that on an education level. Going back a little further, there was the career path into security was very, very loose. And a lot of people go in and do system administration or development work and take an interest and start moving over to security. So it's only in the last few years, it's really grown up as its own sort of thing and people can do it right from the outset. I think we still focus a lot on the traditional background as an industry and we really need to to look at getting people in and training them up on the job more just because someone doesn't have a four-year degree in computer science or whatever doesn't mean they're not going to be good security people similarly to that we also spend a lot of time focusing on technical skills where we forget that a lot of security isn't technical skills obviously we have highly technical people in a security team who are doing engineering tasks are doing those sort of security operations tasks, but we have, you know, we have an entire governance, compliance, risk function in a security team. We have the whole area of security awareness, which is sort of psychology based, nearly. Uh, you know, how do we communicate this message and, and and get people? So there's, I think, a lot of non-traditional backgrounds which we really need to look at, and then work with those people to sort of train them up and craft what path they want to follow. Everyone is unique and some people will learn more by doing a, a week-long training course. Other people will learn more by just reading the book from the training course and others will want to go to conferences and that's where they'll sort of learn. So we need to be really adaptive in, in what we do. Look at the sort of non-traditional backgrounds. How can we how can we get them in? How can we train them up? How can we really apply their knowledge to what we do uh, rather than us trying to fit a role onto them? I think that's probably where we'll find a lot of raw security talent. And then the, the other area is obviously you're know, making security champions across the business or whatever sort of word we want to put on them. So, you know, sometimes the security team think they're the only ones to do security, but everyone does security. If, if you have a development organization or an R&D organization, everyone cares about security. They want to to be the person to sort of introduce a big bug or miss something or, or whatever. But you need to work with them to train them up as well so that they're able to do a certain level of security maybe or they can develop securely or they, they know about their you know patching or access controls or whatever they look after. And then they can escalate for advice or escalate if they determine something looks a bit funny here. You know, I need I need a bit of help. They know how to escalate. So yeah, there's two paths. I think there's obviously coming into the security team as a whole, but there's the rest of the business and, and helping them to become security champions. Yeah, and it is really important that security is seen as like an enabler for the business and a partner to the business and not a uh, not a blocker, not a team of no. Yeah, and if you do that right, you can have a m- much bigger effect on the security culture by partnering with your uh, your engineering team than you can have just building another detection. Far more likely that you'll prevent a breach, uh, prevent a breach that way. No, I know you're like you're starting out in this this stealth startup right now. There's a lot of people that are in like similar positions to you that are on, you know, either small or even fast growing security teams. What's the number one piece of advice you'd share with others who are, you know, in a similar position to you? 
I'm not sure I have all the answers to that because uh, I'm trying to figure that out right now as well. I think to really understand the business is important. So there's so many elements in a fast-growing business, fast-moving business. As you said, you don't want to leave the department to know, but you really need to understand the business, what the business objectives are and what the business risks are, and then work to try and, and minimize those. And there's there's ways as well that you know security can definitely help people and streamline their their functions. So it's to really sort of hook into where is the business going, what's the business doing, and then let's try and, and help with security and things like, you know, if, if the business is, is chasing some sort of compliance certification, that's somewhere where security is going to directly help the sales organization, for example, because if they get whatever compliance certification you're, you're chasing after, the sales team can then use that as a sort of unique selling point or probably not unique, I suppose, and that others will have the, the certification, but they can use it as a selling point with prospects and customers. And security will obviously help to achieve that certification. That's going to be somewhere where you can make immediate impact. But yeah, I think understanding the business and and where the business is going and helping is, uh, is going to be key. And even if it's not a unique selling point, it is like often, certainly for a lot of our customers, it's a non-negotiable part of the business, right? So like you can't do the business of, uh, of informatic. You can't do the business of, I, I know a little bit more about your startup, but you can't do the business of your startup if you're not trusted, right? It's a critical part of it that you have these certifications and not even that you have these certifications. That's the result of it. It's a critical to keep your customers' data safe and make sure that you're a good partner to them. Yeah, and ultimately... You know, a lot of that comes down to trust as well. Yeah. Um, and if we can, you know, have an element of trust around what we do and how we operate, that really helps. And you know, simple things like say, I know, I know, at times you guys um, have a security pack that you sort of provide to customers, sort of reasonably mm-hmm. upfront, right? And and that that helps drive trust because people that are chasing answers, waiting on answers, coming back, you know, little things like that can really help show that we're not hiding anything here. Um, and that we want, we want to be upfront uh, and want to be be quite clear in our intentions that here's what we're doing. Um, yeah, transparency builds trust as well, and not not just in your yeah. breach notifications, but in like in security, yeah, security processes and communication in general. If you're thinking about the, like the future of security operations in a couple of years' time, and I, I know you are, like, what do you think security operations teams will look like? I think security operations teams are already transitioning to looking at those higher value issues. That, like we talked about earlier, I think the days of our traditional L1, L2, L3 sort of being a very structured team that goes to a certain point and then escalates, I think that's probably sort of dying out. I think moving towards more of a, a higher capability team that has higher levels of access to investigate things across the environment is going to be uh, going to be critical. I think Security operation then is also moving towards you know more of being a, a security service desk as well that you know we're handling security and helping everyone across the business to to manage security and sort of be that that trusted first point of contact for any security issue and you know it's someone going, I have a security question let's go to the security operations team and and answer through that that mechanism because the people answering that question are then more experience and, and have the ability to answer that question as opposed to the old way of you know everyone's following a very designated playbook this isn't an incident i understand any test to l2 l3 etc i think that's 
sort of where where so you don't see some companies moving towards that direction already that they're sort of not even calling it a security operations team it's a cert team or a, a c cert team straight off the bat yep makes tons of sense you even managed to i suppose automate away a lot of that like l1 l2 team when you were in informatica right yeah and i think i alluded to it there that they a lot of what they traditionally do is very playbook or standard operating procedure based and if it's very structured in that manner i can't see any reason why we can't automate it and um, particularly at the l1 level that's something that is done not just in security operations but also service desk and operations teams is you don't want those people going off script or off book right mm-hmm. so you're trying to get them to very rigidly stick to your process but then if they're rigidly sticking to your process, surely you can just automate that process because you're taking away that human element. You just want them to follow the decision flow. So, so yeah, by automation, then we can reduce and reduce, reduce their workload and then effectively eliminate it over time. And it also helps those L1 analysts because they now need to start taking on more complex, higher value tasks. So they need Absolutely. to train up and and sort of further themselves and um, to do that they're not they're not spending most of their day doing very repetitive tasks <laughs> following a rigid process that they realize can be done by yeah like you're not learning if you're just following a process where it's like take yeah. this ip address and putting it into virus total and then copy the results and paste it into this ticket that's not learning yeah. it's not yeah exactly and then have someone else analyze it you know yeah. it's also completely not inefficient right? because or inefficient sorry i should say because if the l1 takes it and yeah, the smart people they can see. Oh, this you know virus total. Most most of the yeah. vendors there say this is malicious. Oh, I'm pasting this because the the process just says paste it in the ticket and assign it to L two, and then it's three, four, five, however many hours until the L two picks that ticket up. Uh, meanwhile, you have something going on in that machine that the L one was like, well, I knew this, but I'm yep. following the process, and that's obviously not a not a good no. place to be. Definitely, yeah, definitely not, Niall. So if people do want to watch this space, what's the best way to do it? I suppose people can follow me on LinkedIn if they have any questions. Um, shoot me a question or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Happy to help, happy to chat to anyone in terms of the, the startup. Yeah, hopefully we'll be, we'll be out of stealth mode within the next few months. But uh, until then, I don't want to say too much or can't say too much as of yet. No, nope, completely understand. Well, look, thanks very much for talking to us. And I certainly will be watching uh, watching this space and looking forward to finding out more. And we hope to have you on again here in the future. Thank you so much, Niall. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit Tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.